Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi, everyone. This is Rohit from Life Self Mastery. I'm excited to have Roshan Patel, uh, who's the founder and CEO of Walnut, a lending platform that makes healthcare more affordable for patients by breaking up lost medical bills into small monthly payments. Before Walnut, Roshan served as a principal at HL Ventures, and before joining HL Ventures, he was an associate at Space Capital, a venture fund focused on early-stage companies in the space industry, where he led the sourcing and diligence of new investment opportunities for the fund. Roshan holds a MS in Finance from Vanderbilt University and a BS in Mathematics from George Washington University. He currently sits on the board of Children's Scholarship Fund as a mentor at Venture for America. Welcome to the show, Roshan. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. So, you know, uh, you have an interesting journey, you know, before the call, we talked to you, uh, you were born and brought up in UK, you, you came to US, uh, you, you were in the venture capital, then you got into startups. Yeah. How, how did, how did the entire journey start? And, you know, what led you into, into starting Walnut? Yeah, absolutely. Out of college, I actually started as a, a quant trader at a hedge fund. So more of the traditional finance world. Um, and actually did not really enjoy it so much. I, I did not find it very fulfilling. Um, you know, we were mostly very profit driven, so we're not really creating a product or having much impact on the world. And I thought, you know, this is not what I want to do with the rest of my life. So I did enjoy the investing aspect and, you know, this was around like 2015, 2016. So, you know, the rise of like Uber, Snapchat, Airbnb, like, you know, really impressive startups that were really reaching scale. So I thought, investing in startups might be fun. And so that was kind of the moment I learned about venture capital uh, and the world of startups. And so that's when I transitioned into VC. So, um, you know, spent the last four or five years in VC, uh, investing in everything from like, you know, plastic alternatives to space companies, uh, just really a wide range of stuff. Um, So that was kind of my journey from, you know, college to VC. Um, And then, in my time in VC, like I was really interested in fintech naturally, just given that was my traditional, you know, finance background. Um, and like most founders, you know, you experience a problem and then you want to solve that problem. And so, actually, a few years ago, I had a family member get a very large medical bill, and just going through the process of negotiating it and disputing it with the hospital was pretty terrible. So I thought there must be a better way to solve this, you know, in a much more patient friendly way than like harassing someone into paying a medical bill. So I went down this rabbit hole of healthcare payments, talked to dozens of patients and healthcare providers. And the farther down the rabbit hole I went, the more broken I realized it was. And so um, I thought to myself, if no one's going to come up with a solution to this, maybe I should. And so that was about a year ago. And, you know, Walnut was officially born in October of last year. Oh, very interesting. You, you started in the in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, you, you've talked about you, you you were in the VC world, you, you worked there for a couple of years. What made, uh, you know, what is the transition? What is the mindset which is required to to go from from being a VC to an operator and an owner? Or, or, or did, you, did you feel like you should have stayed in the VC industry for a couple of more years? Yeah, I think most people end up going the opposite journey. Like they are at a startup very early or a founder and then go to VC. And I went the opposite way, which is very atypical. Um, But I think it actually helped me a lot because 
as a VC, you have like a bird's eye view into many different companies, you know, your portfolio companies, and there's many different industries, many different challenges. So I think I became a very good generalist where like I can sit down in a meeting and like contribute valuable you know, insight into a marketing problem or a sales problem or a finance or ops problem. Like you're kind of relevant across everything, which is really important if you're going to start a company. Like you have to kind of be a jack of all trades. Um, and then it also definitely helps with fundraising because you know how VCs think and what they want to hear and how to think about de-risking your company. So I think it was very valuable um, to have you know, myself as a former VC as part of the co-founding team of Walnut. Interesting. And, uh, you know, uh, you, you're part of uh, Space Capital and HL, uh, HL Ventures, you know. Well, what are some of the learnings you have had uh, as, as a VC, especially in, in, into space capital? You know, it's a, it's a very interesting space, but uh, something which I'm not that aware of. But, uh, uh, but you know, looking at Elon Musk and a lot of a uh, lot of interesting startups which coming out of uh, uh, out in the, in the space world. Uh, you know, what, what were what were your learnings from both these VC firms? Yeah, there's a ton. There's so many. Um, I think maybe the biggest thing I learned was, you know, when I was a quant trader at a hedge fund, everything was very data driven. Like you have so many metrics and financials to analyze. And in VC world, that does not exist. Like a lot of times you're investing in companies that are pre-product. They don't have any revenue to look at. And Thanks. so, especially in the space industry where you might take like several years to get to market and then several years beyond that to start generating revenue. It all becomes about the team and just being able to assess founders um, and their, their slope. Like where do you see them like in five years, a hundred years, I mean, 10 years from now, like can you lead a team of a hundred people and can this person lead a company that's going to be billions of dollars uh, being able to like see not just who they are today, but where they are in the future and their potential, I think is really important. Interesting, and uh, you, you know, uh, Walnut is, is a lending platform which which uh, for for healthcare, uh, where you do not charge you know fees or interest to customers. But you know, how how do you make money if you not charging uh, you know fees for, from customers? Yeah, it was really important to us not to increase the cost of healthcare any more than it already is, uh, because it is so absurdly expensive and broken in this country. So we decided not to try and pass costs onto the patient, but rather the healthcare provider. So we charge healthcare providers uh, a merchant fee or transaction fee, which is essentially a percent of the bill. Uh, and that's how we make money. Got it. And, you know, you know uh, I'm based out of UK. I understand how the NHS works, but uh, just for the context for, for listeners, you know, how, how, uh, how does the healthcare system work in, uh, in USA? And you've talked about it's pretty much broken, but uh, for international listeners who want to understand about, about the whole concept, can you, can you, can you, uh, you know, deep dive more into, uh, into how the entire system works? Because from what I understand is like, uh, now, people do do pay for the healthcare charges, but uh, do they don't they get the services which is needed? Yeah, absolutely. So unlike most countries in Europe and parts of Asia where the government uh, subsidizes a lot of healthcare, that's yeah. not so much the case in the U.S. So uh, usually individuals are responsible for getting insurance, and okay. that's typically offered through their employer. Um, even if you have insurance, you still have what are called deductibles or copays. So you do incur a lot of costs, even if you have insurance. 
And then there's a whole subset of the population that is uninsured. And so any you know, time they go to, into the healthcare system, they are incurring a large cost. Um, and then there are a lot of aspects about the healthcare system in terms of its pricing and how costs are determined, uh, which are very inflated relative to other countries. So you'll see like, you know, news articles, which are basically horror stories of someone getting like a simple treatment that ends up being $10,000 just due to the intricacies of the healthcare system. Um, but I'd say like compared to most other countries, you, you will incur more yearly costs out of pocket in the U.S. than, than anywhere else. Interesting. And, uh, you know, um, how, how does your company decide, uh, you know, how much loan should a, should a customer uh, get uh, from, from your platform? Uh, is, do, you, do you look into some sort of analytics to, to decide that? Yeah, absolutely. So our mission is to expand financial access to healthcare and really reduce or eliminate the burden, the financial burden that patients incur when they receive that healthcare. So uh, our goal is to be able to approve more patients for Walnut than any other financial company. Uh, and part of that is looking at data that other companies are not looking at. So when we determine how much uh, a loan a customer should get, we look at thousands of data points in real time. Um, that can be credit bureau data, that can be print data, or you know, bank transaction history, that can be data we get from the healthcare provider. And we basically look at all those data points and you know, shove them through a machine learning algorithm, which helps us determine how much we can approve a patient for. Today, I have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash social pilot to get a 14-day free trial. Oh, interesting. Uh, and, uh, you know, who, who would be an ideal customer for Walnut? You know, if you can talk about the customer persona, uh, just to understand, or, or how do you, how do you, how did you go about capturing the, the audience for, for Walnut? Yeah, I'd say, like, unlike most startups, which, you know, try and come up with a very specific customer archetype, uh, we didn't really do that because healthcare is so broad, it affects essentially everyone in the world. Um, and you don't really know that you need something like Walnut until it happens to you. So like whether you're a 20 something year old young professional in New York or you know, a 60 something year old retired person in the Midwest, you're gonna experience the cost of healthcare in some way. Um, so we really made sure like whatever product we're building works for the majority of Americans out there because almost everyone's gonna need this. Um, however, like most of our customers fall into, you know, one of a couple buckets. So that can be you're uninsured and just are susceptible to large healthcare costs, or you're on a high deductible plan, which means you have to pay usually several thousand dollars yourself before your insurance starts covering any healthcare costs. All right. And, uh, you know, uh, I wonder wanted to understand, you know, when you, when you started acquiring your customers, was it more, uh, you know, word of mouth or was it, you know, uh, more like paid acquisition channels that you looked at to acquire your first customers? Yeah, I'd say it was uh, just hustling through friends, family, investor networks, um, really just trying to get warm introductions to healthcare providers and patients that had experienced large medical bills. Um, we actually were pretty 
uh, intentional about not really spending anything on marketing so early on and being very capital efficient with how we were spending that budget uh, because we didn't want uh, to conflate early users if we were spending on marketing uh, with value from our product or just because we spent a lot of money on ads. Like we want to make sure what we're building is actually valuable before we start spending money on paid acquisition. Got it. You know, uh, uh, I've been part of a company called OYO Rooms where I was looking at medical tourism. So I, so I understand, you know, uh, acquiring a, a customer can be uh, can be expensive, especially in, in, the, in the medical industry. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, you, you've raised a, a bit of a capital. How do you how do you look at allocating, you know, marketing spend and, and your resources efficiently, uh, you know, going forward? Yeah, absolutely. So the way our business model works uh, is actually B2B2C. So we partner with the healthcare provider, which is more of a B2B sales process, who then offers us to their patients. So we actually don't really have any direct consumer marketing budget um, at the moment. Um, eventually we will. I think you know when we raise our future rounds, we'll definitely allocate some of that budget to direct a consumer acquisition. Because I think it is helpful to have that organic word of mouth where customers are aware of Walnut when they step into their healthcare provider's office and they ask their healthcare provider, hey, do you guys offer Walnut? And the healthcare provider's like, oh, what's that? Like, let me, let me research that. So it's kind of a tool to help us acquire more healthcare providers in that sense, almost like a, a viral growth loop in a sense. Um, but at the moment, our marketing budget is zero. Oh, got it. And uh, you know, you, you talked about B two B partnerships. Uh, what is the what is the sales pipeline? And you know, how much how much time does it take for you to you know acquire a customer, uh, acquire a paid customer? Yeah. So the tricky part about B two B sales in healthcare is that it is incredibly hard to get a doctor on the phone. Like even if you're a patient of a doctor, it's really hard to get them on a phone and like schedule an appointment. So to like call them up and like try and sell them something it just like turns the difficulty up to 11. So um, our, our sales process is like a combination of uh, cold outreach through email, phone, LinkedIn. Um, we also do have a fair number of patients coming to us organically, just, you know, searching like, what do I do if I get a large medical bill? And, you know, we've kind of optimized our site for SEO. So we show up there. Um, but yeah, patients come to us, you know, about 10 per day and just send us their medical bill. And all we do is just reach out to their healthcare provider and say, hey, we have a patient that got a really large medical bill from you. Can we you know, help you help the patient pay it? And so that's basically our sales process. We get the doctor on the phone that way. And usually after one or two 20-minute phone calls, they agree to work with us. Uh, so it can take anywhere from like one day to like seven days on average. Oh, okay. Got her. Interesting. And uh, you know, I want to understand, you know, what, what are the, uh, you, since you started last year, what, what are the kind of revenues you're looking at projecting for 2122? Uh, and, you know, what, what, uh, what do you think about the unit economics, uh, especially in this particular space? Yeah, absolutely. So at the moment, we're working um, with a handful of healthcare providers um, across the US. Um, so we've got about 80 in our network at the moment, um, hoping to scale that to a few hundred by this time next year. Uh, in terms of unit economics, so I mentioned we make money by charging the healthcare provider um, a percentage of the bill. So usually that percentage ranges uh, based on the type of healthcare being provided and that provider's specific financial situation. So like, for example, their current collections rate 
is part of the equation when determining what their transaction fee should be. Um, but typically it'll range between 5% on the low end to 80% on the high end. So what's crazy is the average collections rate for a hospital for out-of-pocket costs is 20%. So for a hospital, they are making 20 cents on the dollar, which is pretty crazy. That's like you're implicitly paying an 80% transaction fee currently. So if we go to them and say, hey, we can increase your collections rate from 20% to 40% or doubling your collections rate, that translates to a 60% transaction fee for us. So pretty huge variance, um, but that's our revenue. So let's say on average, it's like a 20% transaction fee. Our cost is essentially our default rate. So how many patients end up getting a payment plan from us, but then do not end up paying us back. And so as long as our transaction fee is greater than our default rate, we are profitable. Um, so that's the, the unit economic equation. Got it. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, for us here, it's, it's important to to ensure that there's always cash in, in the bank and you're always, you know, looking at raising money, but uh, it's important to acquire great talent as well. Uh, you know, since, uh, you know, COVID had been an inflection point where people have gone gone back to uh, gone to their homes and you know it's it's mostly remote for, for a lot of companies now how do you look at you know acquiring the best of talent uh, especially in these uh, these times yeah absolutely we have been very capital efficient i'd say since we raised our seed round so we've made four hires since we raised our seed round so we're a team of seven currently and we've basically indexed on culture fit so uh, making sure the people that we're hiring are extremely passionate about the mission and vision and problem that we're trying to solve. And I think there's also a huge opportunity to uh, basically arbitrage the talent market where um, we're trying to look for talent that no one else is looking at, or if they are looking at them, they're just misevaluating them. So for example, if you haven't gone to an Ivy League school or you know, you had a GPA of less than 3.7 or you live in the Midwest, like we are happy to interview you and consider you for Walnut. And that resume might just get auto rejected at another tech company. So I think there's a huge opportunity to find really talented individuals who are very passionate about Walnut that no one else is looking at. No, I, I really like that, you know, the culture is fit is more, is, is very important these, these times and, uh, and, and, you know, uh, it's been a year for you that you've been building uh, the company. How do you, how do you look at uh, your decision-making process, especially when you, when you started off and now you have a team of seven people, uh, what, what has changed uh, in their decision-making in the last couple of months and year? Yeah, absolutely. So what's been um, fairly easy is how we make decisions at Walnut all starts with our mission and vision and our values. So that acts as our North Star whenever we make a decision. And basically, you know, we started Walnut with experiencing the problem from the patient side of a, of a large medical bill. And so basically anytime we're making a sales, marketing, product, engineering decision, we just ask ourselves, is this good for the patient, right? And that really just acts as an easy filter to determine whether or not an idea is worth pursuing. And if it's not good for the patient, we just throw it out. Um, and so that's, basically an easy way or, or decision-making uh, process uh, for us at Walnut. Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions, and making your days calmer 
and more productive, you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Got it. And, uh, you know, entrepreneurs uh, are known as, you know, people who are risk takers, but uh, how do you, how do you assess risk once you, once you've started a, a company and, you know, you're in, in the journey of building the company, do, do you think you become less, uh, I mean, uh, uh, you become risk averse or do you, do you, how, how do you, how do you look at risk and how do you look at a potential uh, considering that you know you're always looking at raising capital, growing the company, uh, how do you, how do you assess risk uh, these times? Yeah, I think every time you end up fundraising, you have to de-risk certain aspects of the company. So at the earliest stages, really all you need to have de-risked is the team and you know maybe the market, um, like there's demand for what you're offering. But then once you raise your next round, you know maybe you have to start de-risking. You know your go-to-market strategy, or your unit economics, or your your revenue. Right, every round you start to like you know de-risk more and more of the company. Um, so that's kind of the framework we use when we're thinking about fundraising and the levels of risk that we're taking. Um, so for us, you know, we're somewhere between you know seed and our Series A round. So you know at the moment we've been focused on launching and getting our product in the market and seeing what's valuable for users um, and just being really focused on top line revenue growth. And I think at a certain point, you know, before our next round, it'll start to, you know, become more of a question about profitability and making sure, you know, the payment plans that we're giving out are actually, you know, viable to be making money off of. Um, so that's kind of how we think about risk. Got it. And, uh, you know, uh, Wallet has raised uh, uh, a seed round from, you know, really high quality investors. We, we've talked about Gaurav Chain from Afford, who's also uh, a past guest on, on the podcast. And how did you decide to get, you know, uh, who should be on the, on the cap table? And, you know, uh, how do you, what is your advice to founders who are looking to, to raise funds from really high quality investors, especially in the seed round? Yeah, we looked for two things. So the first was just a real passion for our mission and vision. Um, and for the problem that we're solving. So really wanted to make sure that they were in it for the long run and wanted to see us, you know, change how healthcare is paid for in this country. And the second was their ability to help us. So Walnut is somewhat unique in that we're at the intersection of two very highly regulated and complicated industries, financial services and healthcare. And so having investors that are able to help on one of those two sides, and ideally both. A lot of our investors are very knowledgeable about both. Uh, it was very valuable to us. So passion, ability to help, and you know, my advice to founders would be, um, you know, it's an honor to have any of these investors invest in your company, but you should also think about it uh, from the other side. So like, it should be an honor for the investors to be a part of your journey. And so really try and vet them for their ability to help um, and make connections for you and help you grow. Got it. And also, you know, uh, 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 before the call, you know, I, I mentioned I was part of uh, OnTech Podcast Fellowship and uh, they, they really helped me out in the distribution part. So it was a great experience for me. Um, how was your experience at, at OnTech? And do you think, uh, you know, platforms like uh, OnTech and Y Combinator can, can really, uh, you know, replace the universities? 
Absolutely. I mean, my experience was incredible. I think anytime you put, you know, a hundred smart people in the same room, like incredible things are going to happen. And so um, I did on deck almost two years ago now, and I'm still in touch with a lot of the people in my cohort, um, even from other future cohorts and just learned a ton in the two years that I've been a part of on deck. Um, and maybe if I'm an 18 year old right now, like I would probably consider, uh, you know, paying a thousand dollars for on deck versus, you know, $200,000 for university. I think that is actually a very hard decision to make. And I think more and more, we'll start to see people go the on deck or Y Combinator or just general startup route rather than even enrolling in, in university. All right. And I believe you, you're also part of a pla planned uh, accelerator, uh, or do you think accelerators like played and uh, you know Y Combinator uh, really do the help out? And you know how was your uh, general experience over there? Yeah, absolutely. It was a great experience. Like I think having the mentorship, guidance, and ongoing support of one of the most successful and important fintech companies ever is really helpful to have if you're starting a fintech company. Um, but regardless of the accelerator, I think you'll probably develop a strong network of advisors, peers, mentors, connections to VCs, um, but probably most importantly, just the other founders in the accelerator with you. Um, like I've learned a ton about just aspects of building a startup from the other founders in the cohort and accelerator with me um, that will last long after the accelerator is over. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, such accelerators and such, uh, uh, you know, communities do do really help out. Uh, uh, Roshan, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Yeah, I think uh, it's probably Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. So uh, she was a, a former poker player who wrote this book and basically is trying to apply a lot of poker concepts to business. Um, but it really helped me frame like the question of like, how much risk do you take on and um, how do you make decisions, uh, which was one of your earlier questions. Basically like the key takeaway from the book is um, you can separate the quality of the decision from the quality of the outcome. So you can make a great decision based on the information available to you at the time, but still get a bad outcome. But that means it, it still might've been a good decision at the time. So um, just being able to like separate those two and, you know, make them distinct um, is really important. And basically in poker, as long as you're making positive expected value bets, you're gonna come out ahead in the long run. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think thinking a bit uh, really helps out in, in entrepreneurship and in life as well. And uh, do you have any favorite online tools, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Yeah, actually one I came across recently that kind of changed my life is this Chrome extension called Workona, which is like a, a tab management tool. So like. If you're like me, you have a thousand tabs open in Chrome and it's like really hard to find anything. And like anytime you turn off your computer, you're like, wow, I just lost a thousand tabs. Um, so what Workona does is it lets you set up like different groups of tabs and then switch between them. So like I'll have a you know set of five tabs for sales and a set of five tabs for recruiting. And like I can switch between them very easily. And it basically just made me so much more productive and I can like easily switch contacts of what I'm working on within Chrome very easily. No, I think I think that's the first one. I, I'm going to really uh, uh, check this out later, and we're going to put that in the show notes. And uh, you know, Arshan, if you could go back in time when you when you started Walnut, what is the one thing you're focused on or done anything differently? 
Yeah, I think I would have spent more time becoming a better writer. Uh, I think for me, I, I studied math and science and was always like into numbers and quantitative stuff. And I hated reading and writing in school. Um, but realizing like as a founder, a lot of your time is spent either in meetings or if you're not in meetings, you're writing. So like I'm usually writing emails. I'm like writing messages on Slack, writing investor updates. I'm writing content for our site. I'm writing documentation or plans or strategy. And I'm terrible at writing. So like I would become a much, much better writer. And I think I'd be a much better founder if I was. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think I've read one of your tweets where you talked about it. Uh, you, uh, you know, uh, additional one for you because you know you've been acting on Twitter. I really like the engagement you have it over there. You know, how much time do you spend on Twitter, and what is what is the best strategy people can develop to to be better at on Twitter and you know write much better over there? Yeah, I, I've used Twitter as a way to get better at writing, and I think you know I probably spend like ten to fifteen minutes every morning, um, but it's paid off much more than that. So like. I've made hires from Twitter. I've gotten sales from Twitter. Um, I've learned a ton from Twitter. I've made you know random investor connections through Twitter. Um, so to me, Twitter is what LinkedIn should have been for startups and tech, um, and that's kind of how I use it, like professional networking, essentially. Got it. And, and do you also do you also focus on DMs or more about the threads and you know about what is the entire process? Uh, when you when you looking at you, you using Twitter, yeah, I, I use it um, both. So like I I tweet myself, just learning in public essentially. Like anything oh. interesting I learn, I try and tweet out and um, get others to comment and refine my thinking. Um, and then I also I also get a lot of DMs and direct message a lot of other people and just uh, try and set up networking that way and just see what comes of it. Yeah, no, awesome. I think uh, Twitter uh, is something which I've started using more, and um, I'm definitely going to deep dive more into some some of the best strategies and learn from from your uh, Twitter space and how to get better on that. Uh, uh, Roshan, what is the best way people can know about Polnet and know more about you? Yeah, best way to contact me is on Twitter, most likely. Got it. And if they want to reach out to Polnet, so. Uh, 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 you know what, what is the what is the website and you know uh, how can how can they reach out there? Yeah, Walnut website is hellowalnut.com. My email is roshan at hellowalnut.com, and on Twitter I'm just at roshan patel. Got it. Uh, 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 roshan, thank you so much for taking our time speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.